Before Mark comes up, I have uh, one uh, further announcement. If you are new to Northview, uh, one of the things we've been talking about for a little while is our Downs Road building project. So just a really brief overview of what I'm talking about. A couple of years ago, by a couple of years, I mean like about four years ago, our congregation, our leadership team, our elders, we discerned that we really felt that we were having those capacity issues similar to what Dawson Creek was expressing, or to what Creekside is expressing, and we needed to build a building. And then two years later, everything closed because of the plague. Um, but we've been rediscerning, and then uh, this last year, uh, around springtime, we rediscerned that we still felt that the Lord was calling us to build this building. So a couple updates on that. We've been, we started a capital campaign in, the, in May. That has gone very well. We have a $15 million target. So the whole project is about $30 million. Uh, we've already had about 15 allotted from uh, people donating throughout COVID. Uh, and then an estate gift. And then a whole bunch of years of surpluses that have kind of uh, brought the first 15. And we needed another 15. So we have pledged about eight, $8.7 million of that final 15 needed which on a total project scale means we have about 80% of what we need either in the bank right now or pledged, which is wonderful. It should lead you to a question, why haven't we started yet then? So you could ask that question now or you don't have to. The other service did. It was just Mark. Yeah, this is, we just did it again. So one of the things we've been reviewing, uh, just because when we first had brought this design forward four years ago, we wanted to make sure this was still the right building and all of the features of it were still the right fit. And like realistically, we're talking about a building that's going to last 50 to 100 years. We don't want to build it and have regret right away. So as we were reviewing it, there was one uh, primary and consistent concern with our building design. So you'll see behind me the, uh, on the screen, the blue section of that image is the new auditorium. And you'll notice that Blue Auditorium connects to the old building through that small little, um, I call it an umbilical cord, but we call it a breezeway. It's just a tiny little connection that, that basically connects the new building to the old. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why we designed it that way. Uh, there's going to be a minimal destruction, or min no, not destruction, construction interference with ministries in the old building. It'll be like building an old, a different building and then just connecting it that way. Uh, the other reason we designed it this way was a little less code complications. So it feels like we're building just a separate building and we don't have to find ways to integrate it. But as we kind of reviewed that, we had some concerns. If we continue to grow and that auditorium fits 2,000 people, all your kids are going to be on the other side of that breezeway. And the idea of having 2,000 people walk through there was a little bit concerning. So we've been reviewing this. Uh, we actually uh, brought in a code consultant to help us kind of review what our options are. Uh, because we, we really want to make sure we're building the right building. Um, so we have a very exciting design update we want to show you. So that blue section is now the current building footprint in this new design. So the primary difference is rather than having a small uh, connecting point between the new auditorium foyer and this foyer outside us here at Downs Road, it all becomes one massive foyer, one massive gathering space. It integrates the new build with the old build almost seamlessly. One of my frustrations when I first started coming to Northview at Downs Road specifically was it felt like this building was built in stages because it was. It was so weirdly designed and it still is. If you're new here, you know what I'm talking about. Our hope is that this makes it feel like this was all integrated, all intentional and planned out. So we're really excited about this design change. It's going to result in a lot less of those pinch points that we were identifying before. 
So what does this mean? There's two things that this really means. So the first has to do with timeline. This will require us to get some permit uh, uh, updates. We're going to have to change our permitting. So that means we can't do this in the fall. The permitting process is going to take a little while. Fortunately, it's not going to be as long as it was during the heat of uh, development when things were really, really hot and there was a lot of things happening. The wait times right now aren't very long. So that's encouraging. We could press to make this happen by winter so that we're starting in winter, but all builders will tell you that's a terrible time to start a construction project. Try pouring concrete in pouring rain. It's not good. So a realistic timeline is probably we're looking at spring next year to start this project. And the second thing you might be wondering, I know I was, is what does this do for the cost? One important thing to note with the cost is our square footage in this design doesn't increase at all. So it looks bigger, but really, really what it is, it's the foyer smushed into the old building space. So the square footage isn't higher. There will be some cost in connecting it to the old building. Um, and right now it's looking like the number, I, I have Dean sitting right in front of me and he's like, oh boy, what are you going to tell him? The number that we're hearing from our builder is that connection probably won't increase the price by even 5%. So we still don't really know the total cost of this project, but the integration like this isn't going to be as, I, I was really worried that that number was going to be significant. Uh, our builder isn't super worried about that cost jumping up too high, but it will be somewhat more. The question we ask ourselves is, is it worth it? Is it worth the extra time? Is it worth the potential extra cost? We feel like it is. We feel like this is the building that's going to be a 50 to 100 year building uh, and not something we're going to have questions about right after we're done. You have questions. I know you do. We have an AGM end of November. Uh, I would encourage you to bring your questions to that AGM. Uh, if it's urgent, if you need an answer right now, you can email me, uh, uh, jgiesbrecht at northview.org. You can email questions at northview.org. You can email our development uh, chair. His name is Bruce Stiles, bstiles at northview.org. But if it can wait, bring it up at the AGM. This will be a key talking point that we'll be bringing up there. Finally, uh, before you come up, I've got one last thing. We are going to put these images on our website, on our building page on the website. If you want to have a look at them, because this was just too short, uh, they will be up there probably early this week. So there you have it. You are now informed. Enjoy your next two hours of sermon. Woohoo! Wow. Thank you, Jonathan. He does not too bad for ginger, eh? You know, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. All right, we are going to dive right in. Uh, you're going to need your Bibles. We are in John chapter 13. Hi, Alice. I have to wave back there. Awesome. And uh, welcome to East Abbey and Mission Campus joining us today. It's great to have you guys with us. Uh, so we're in John 13, and it brings us literally to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Uh, we're dealing with a picture that is a very famous picture, the Last Supper, the Lord's Last Supper with his disciples, and it's his final teaching and preparation for his disciples before he leaves. He says to them, I'm going to be leaving you. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. You might have heard that title for it. Five full chapters of conversation at the dinner table. It is the longest conversation that Jesus has with his disciples that we have recorded where it's not out in the public. So uh, chapter 12 was a hinge point. He finishes off his public ministry. And now in chapter 13 is just Jesus and the 12 to start with. And then Judas leaves and just the 11 and five full chapters of conversation. And so as that evening meal gets rolling, Jesus does something very unexpected. Uh, so we'll read the first 17 verses of John 13, and then we'll just unpack it uh, a little bit together. Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The reading of God's word. So let me tell you right up front where we're headed with this message. Get right to the point. It is a message that every single person on the planet needs to hear. It is a message that every single one of us listening this weekend need to hear. Because if we have one thing in common with every other person on the planet, it is this. Every human being at some point along the journey of their life experiences emotion that we call shame. An emotion that because of sin, call it a guilty conscience, call it a sense of I've done something wrong, I feel dirty, I wonder, can I clean it up? Can I be forgiven? And the big idea in this text is simply this, that Jesus is the one who can wash us clean. That's what we're going to get at, that Jesus is the one who can wash us clean. And there are two key messages in this text. And the first and the most obvious is right there in front of us that Jesus washes feet. And the example of humility that Jesus gives and calls us to follow, that I've given you an example. And as I have served you, my disciples, you also should serve one another. And if you know this and you do it, you will be blessed. There's a promise there at verse 17. But the second is taking us a little bit deeper below the surface, and it is this, that Jesus not only washes feet, but he washes souls. The spiritual work of cleansing that the Holy Spirit accomplishes, and how we are washed clean, and how we are given a new identity in Christ. And so he washes feet, he washes souls, and then it pushes us to this question where we'll land is, has he washed you? Has he washed me? Have we made this example personal? So we're going to just walk through the text and we're going to chew on some of the details and I want you to follow along in your Bibles, but we'll just dig in deeper and layer by layer and then we're going to drill deep down into this cool, refreshing well that is here. 
John 13 verse 1 is a simple context. They have come to what we call the Last Supper. It's a very famous story, and I would assume that almost all North Americans have seen some depictions of this story somewhere along their journey of life. The most famous, of course, is Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting of the Last Supper that hangs hangs in a, a gallery in Milan, Italy to this day. Uh, It's completely inaccurate, but it's very famous. Uh, They would not have been seated at chairs. That's not what they did. They reclined at a low table, and they certainly would not have all been lined up along one side of the table for the camera. But regardless, it does give us a picture, and it is a very famous picture that probably your friends and neighbors have seen before, The Last Supper. It starts this five-chapter-long conversation that largely has to do with our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to the world. And that word, the world, actually appears 40 times in the next five chapters. What Jesus is going to really drill into here is how do we relate to the world, specifically when the text tells us Jesus knows he is getting ready to leave, and he's leaving his disciples behind. He's leaving them here in this world. And in essence, what this text is going to say, these five chapters, is that I'm going to leave this world, and I'm going to call you out of this world, even while you remain in in the world. That's a mouthful, right? Let me say it again. I'm going to leave you in this world. I'm going to leave the world, and I'm going to call you out of the world even while you remain in the world. And that theme comes up over these next five chapters. I'm not leaving you alone. The Holy Spirit is going to come help you. Uh, The world hated me. The world is going to hate you. Uh, Take heart. You're going to have trouble in this world, but I have overcome the world. If you remain in me like a vine in the branch, you will bear much fruit. Like you can get through this, guys, but you're going to stay in this world. And then finally you get to the chapter 17 in this great long prayer and he prays for his disciples and he prays for us. I do not ask you, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You're going to stay in this world, but I'm calling you out of this world. So we're going to look again at that verses there, the couple verses, chapter 2, uh, verse 2 to 5, and just look at the, the highlighted words only. Because if you just look at those highlighted words, you have the sentence structure. There is just one simple sentence here that during supper, Jesus rose and he began to wash the feet. That's the, the main sentence. During supper, Jesus rose and he began to wash feet. And then you've got all that other peripheral data, all those parenthetical references wrapped into there. Why is that? Well, to give us a little bit more of the information of what's going on. And there are a couple significant details in there. If you see there during supper, he notices that Judas is at the table with him. Judas who would betray him. And so you think back to the anointing at Bethany two chapters ago, or two weeks ago, rather, in John chapter 12, where Mary pours out that anointing oil, and Judas, who is the treasurer, is upset. He's like, we could have sold that and give the money to the poor, but we're told specifically he wants to steal the money. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that he, after that meal in Bethany, goes out to make a deal to betray Jesus. And Matthew gives us the specifics that for 30 pieces of silver, Judas agrees to watch for an opportunity. Jesus knows it. Judas is at the table with him and he steps up to wash his feet. We're going to come back to that later. Secondly, Jesus knowing all things. So you see the next phrase there, Jesus rose from the table. He knew his hour had come. He knows he has all authority from the father. He knows he's come from God and he will return to God. 
Verse 13, a little bit later, he will say, I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord. In other words, when Jesus rises to take the servant's towel, he fully understands and embraces his authority, his power, his position. He did not shy away from it. He knew fully who he was. I am the Lord God. I've come from the Father. I'm returning from the Father. I am your teacher. I am your Lord. He does not shy away from his position of authority or even his position of power because he knows he is going to do something very counterintuitive. And we'll come back to that as well. He rises from supper to wash their feet. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, at least three reasons, just really quickly. And the most obvious, of course, is he wants to give them a very graphic lesson in servanthood and humility. He explains it himself in verse 12. You don't understand what I've done. Let me explain it to you. Why did I do this? Let me tell you. I've done this to give you an example. If I, your master, your savior, your Lord, have served you in this way, you also should serve one another in this way. I've left you an example. And then verse 17 wraps it up by saying, and if you know this, if you see it, if you understand it, and you do it, you're going to actually be very happy. You will be blessed because you live out a life of servanthood. So the most obvious is he's giving an example. But secondly, on a very practical level, there was a job that needed to be done. The disciples' feet were dirty. Somebody had to wash the feet. Uh, They're meeting in a borrowed room. So both Matthew and Luke tell us the story that Jesus sends the disciples into the city. He says, go on into Jerusalem and you will find a man. You'll see a man walking down the street carrying a jar of water, which was unusual because only women carried water. Follow that guy with his jar of water. And when he gets to his master's house, talk to the master and say, hey, Jesus needs your upper room. And lo and behold, that room is ready for them. But apparently... There was no servant that came with that room, no host assigned to that room. Now, if you remember back to the anointing in Bethany, I talked to you about early hospitality uh, etiquette. When people came to your home in that day, just like we have our etiquette in our day, hospitality, in that day, there were four things that went into your hospitality, Uh, water, oil, perfume, and a kiss. Before they even got to the table to eat, water, oil, perfume, and a kiss, that there would be a servant with a basin of water waiting for you at the door to wash your dusty feet because of the culture. They would give you a drop or a little bit of oil to smear on your face because of the wind and the sun to refresh you, and a drop of perfume, either in the oil itself, scented, or separate from the oil. Why? Because of the ever-present body odor in the heat of the Middle East. Like, let's just say it, they sweat like we sweat. And then finally, you get a kiss from the host. Welcome to my home. In this room, there was no servant. So none of those things had taken place. And so the disciples are reclining at the table with dirty feet. Now, we don't know this, but this is where it's fun to just chew a little bit and meditate and ponder and just, you know, spin it out in your mind. What went on in that conversation? So they walked into the room. Surely they would have known the etiquette. Their feet should have been washed. And they're looking around. There is no servant. Hey, Peter, you going to wash our feet? Hey, Nate, what about you? Nate, you should wash our feet. Uh, Thomas, doubt that. No one was willing to wash the other's feet. Not only did they not wash one another's feet, they didn't even wash their own feet. They didn't even just say, fine, I'll just go to the base of myself. They sat down, reclined at the table with dirty feet. Number three, Luke tells us that in that supper, 
a dispute happens. So Jesus is talking about the bread and the wine, my broken body, my, bro my blood shed for you. And somewhere in the midst of that dinner meal, Luke tells us they had a dispute. They start arguing who is the greatest among us. And then Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? So there's a graphic illustration of servanthood. There's a practical need. They have dirty feet. And there is this dispute. Now, it's impossible for us to know with specific detail the exact order of the events of that night. You, you piece together the four Gospels and the account, and you can get a pretty good idea of the flow of that night. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus passing the bread and the wine. This is my body. This is my blood that will be broken and shed for you. But none of them mention the foot washing. John turns that on its head. John doesn't include the specifics of the, the body and the, the blood of Jesus, the bread and the wine, but he does include the foot washing. And only John gives us this detail in verse 30, which we didn't read, but next week, that Judas leaves after the foot washing. That Judas isn't there for the rest of the conversation, that he exits stage right. We'll come back to that. Why does it matter? Well, consider this. Consider this, that when Jesus rose to wash their feet, Jesus knew in advance. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him before the rooster crowed. Jesus knew that all of them in that room would run away and hide. Jesus knew that Peter and James and John would go with him to the Garden of Gethsemane and that they would fall asleep while he is praying. Jesus knew that even post-resurrection, that Thomas would not be convinced, Thomas would still doubt. Jesus knew most tragically that at that table, with a few coins in his satchel or in his pocket, sat Judas, who was looking for an opportunity to betray him. And yet knowing all of that, Jesus gets up from the table, wraps a towel around himself, and begins to wash their feet. Try to imagine the encounter in your mind. Just pause. Did Judas try to avoid eye contact with Jesus? I wonder. Like, did they catch eyes? Jesus knows. Did Judas know that Jesus knows? Did Jesus wash Judas' feet differently than the others? One guy I was listening to this week, he said, yeah, I'm sure he had a pail of ice water for Judas. You get the cold water, Judas. But from here on out, the object lesson is pretty straightforward. Jesus takes the role of the servant, then he sits back down, and he asks him, do you understand what I did? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're, you're exactly right. If there is anybody in this room who should have been served, it is me. I am your teacher and your Lord. But instead, I've turned your understanding of authority on its head, upside down. The leader is the one serving. And while you guys are arguing about who's greatest in this room and who's got the most power and authority in this room, I'll show you what leadership and power in the kingdom of God looks like by taking up this basin and I'm giving you a promise. If you know this, you see this, you understand this, and you start to live like this, you are going to be blessed. Wow, that's interesting. You see, if Jesus had pulled out the card of the rank, 
No one would have argued with him. If he had said, you know what, my status, I'm the teacher, I'm the master, I'm your leader. Important people like me don't serve. I'm the boss, I'm the CEO, I'm the president, I'm the big man on campus. I shouldn't have to serve. Someone else should do the serving. If Jesus had said that, nobody would have blamed him. If Jesus had pulled out the I've done enough card, nobody would have blamed him, right? For three years, he has been pouring out his life for these men, and in 24 hours, he's going to be dead. And surely on this very last night of his earthly life, surely on that day, Jesus could have said, someone else can serve tonight and nobody would have blamed him. But here he is taking the lowliest job. Let me just meddle a little bit. I mean, you don't have a choice. I'm going to do it anyway. But here, I sometimes get disturbed when I hear Christian people say things like this. I've done my time. I've done my part. Let somebody else serve now. I've filled every ministry in the church imaginable. Did you know that if you go to the scriptures looking for the retirement plan from service in the kingdom, you will not find it? There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your time, your treasure, and your talents are with you until the very last day that you die, until you breathe your last breath, and God wants you to use them unto his glory and the good of the family in serving one another. Can I get an amen, please? Now, can you all sign up for all the serving opportunities that are out there? And finally, if Jesus had said, let's just wait till Judas is gone, nobody would have blamed him. If he just said, you know what, let's just get him out of the room. Washing the feet of my friends is one thing, but there's an enemy in the crowd. And you wonder later, in the years that come, when these same disciples faced the hatred of the world. As Jesus told them, the world is going to hate you. Later, when tradition tells us that 10 of the remaining 11 will die martyrs' deaths. Did they remember this scene that Jesus was willing to serve his enemy? the one who would betray him. So Jesus washes feet, but deeper under that is another lesson that Jesus washes souls. And so go back up. If you're following in your Bibles, go back up to verse six to 11, the conversation in the middle with Peter, because there's something deep and profound that is going on here. And there are two provocative statements. There are two punchy statements, if you will, that Jesus gives. Verse eight, he says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. If I don't wash you, you got no part in me. But then in verse 10, he turns it around and he says, but let me tell you guys, you are clean. Uh, it's in the plural. It's all y'all, all you in this room, all you disciples, you're all clean except for one, it says, because he knew the one who was to betray him. He was not clean. But all the rest of you, you are clean. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me, but let me assure you, you are clean. And there is an important nuance with those words that are being used there. So let's just dig in a little bit. In English, it's there, and it's there in the Greek language. Jesus is drilling a deep well into the spiritual reality of what must happen at the soul level of our lives. We've got to be washed clean. And we can't wash ourselves. Uh, John 13, verse 5, Jesus begins to wash their feet. And that word for wash is this word, nipto. 
Nipto, and it is repeated eight times in this short little text. Verse 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, and 14. Eight times that very same word, nipto, 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 washed, washed, washed. It is a word for ceremonial cleansing. Verse 10 is a different word. The one who has bathed, lipto. It's a different Greek word. We get it in English. It's a different concept in English. It's a different concept in Greek. And it's easily understood. It's the difference between saying, it's supper time, kids, go wash your hands and take a bath. We know the difference, right? If you've had a bath, if you're basically clean, but you've been out going to work before you eat your meal, wash your hands, do it. Or you're dirty, go take a bath. Nipto is the most common for ceremonial cleansing. So all the way through the Old Testament, nearly everything had to be cleansed with water, rinsed or dipped in water. And Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has, a clean, hand, he has clean hands and a pure heart. And the scribes and Pharisees took that very literally and they wrote a list of regulations about all the cleansing ceremonies and washings that had to take place. And Jesus' disciples on one occasion got in trouble. You might remember that. In Mark 7, the Pharisees see them eating and apparently they haven't followed the rules. And so they say to Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's interesting. Not the law of God, but the tradition of the elders. Why do they eat with defiled hands? You're doing it wrong. You didn't wash up right. In chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus states the obvious. If you've had a bath, you don't need another full bath from head to toe. You're already clean. Just wash your hands, wash your feet, and you're good to go. And then he makes this amazing statement at the end of that verse, and you are clean. You're clean. And what he is declaring to his disciples in that moment is the miracle of the new birth. The miracle of a new nature, of new life, that you're not previously clean, but now you are clean. You have been washed. And, and that word is translated in four different ways in our English New Testaments. The words pure, clean, innocent, and clear. Those four words in English translate this word, you have been bathed. You are pure, clean, clear, and innocent. And what Jesus is putting in front of us here is this concept of spiritual cleansing that we all need. And I don't need to know your story to know that this one thing we all hold in common in this room, every single one of us, that there are issues in our life and you call them whatever you want to call them. Sin, brokenness, rebellion, corruption, deceit, whatever label you want to put on it, there are things in each of our lives, in our past, in our present, that we are ashamed of. Things that if we could go back and undo, if we got a mulligan, if we got a do-over, in an instant, I would do it over. I would do it differently. Things that make us feel soiled or dirty. Things that make us feel unworthy to come into the presence of a holy God. Things that even cause us to hold ourselves back from human relationship because if you knew me, if you know who I really was and where I've been and what I've done, you wouldn't accept me. You would reject me. Shame. All of us share this in common. We're marred by sin. The common currency is this one little word, shame. 
And so Jesus comes to us and says, I'm gonna do for you what you can't do for yourselves. I'm gonna wash you. I came to bind up wounds, to cleanse you from your sin, to forgive you from the weight of shame and guilt. And that little word bathed is only used nine times in the New Testament, but with explosive power. Now, four times, it simply refers to just a common bath. Just take a bath in the normal sense of the word. But five times, it refers to something much deeper and richer in the spiritual realm. The washing and the cleansing and the healing power of forgiveness in our lives. So Acts 22 is the first reference. Paul is sharing his testimony. He says, I was on the road to Damascus. I was blinded. I was led into the city. And a guy named Ananias comes to preach to him. And Ananias says to him, Paul or Saul at that point in time, you have been called to preach the gospel. You are going to be a witness. You are going to be used greatly by God. And then he asks this question. And now why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul, what are you waiting for? You're going to be washed. And according to that text, how do you get washed? By calling on the name of the Lord. Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this text, Acts 20, would add that phrase, you call on his name and you get washed. Now, we don't have time to go down this rabbit trail here, but the connection here between the washing of regeneration, that the Spirit of God takes us and baptizes us into Christ, and the symbolism of water baptism, it's why our baptism services are some of the most popular, uh, exciting services in the entire year. Do you not agree? We love to see and hear the testimonies of individuals who have passed from death to life called from the grave of unbelief into new and full life, who have put away the old life, dead, buried, and gone. Who I used to be is no more. I've got a new life. In fact, we got a baptism coming up in six weeks. Looking forward to it already. Uh, East Abbey, if you have not heard of this, today is a baptism class. After the second service, get in that class. Mission Campus, next week is baptism class. Get in that class. Okay, that's just free. Uh, there you go. Acts 22, the first New Testament instance. We hear the washing work of the Spirit of God, the work of regeneration, opening our eyes and ears and our hearts and minds, giving us the capacity to see and hear and understand. It was promised in the Old Testament. So near the end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about a new covenant. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And then uses this language. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Zechariah, near the end of his book, says there's going to come a day when we look on the one we have pierced. We see the one who was crucified, the one who was pierced, and we mourn for what we have done to him. And then it says this, on that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, some of you will remember an old hymn we used to sing. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Amen? So stay with me. We're going to go a little bit deeper into this well because in this well, there is cool, fresh water deep down in this well. There are four more texts and we've got to look at them. Hebrews, the whole book contrasts 
The Old Testament sacrificial system with the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus. The Old Testament that sacrifices could never take away sin. That year after year after year, you just continued to go to the priest, another sacrifice, another sacrifice, another sacrifice, never taking away the sin, but covering it over for a period until Jesus, a new high priest, appears. And Jesus goes into the holies with his own blood once and for all to wash away, take away our sin for sign, sealed, delivered, done, finished. And Hebrews 10 says this, since we have confidence To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's those words, bathed, clean, clear. Ephesians 5, we're not going to talk about marriage, but in the marriage context, it says, husbands, you should love your wives like Christ loved his wife, the bride, the church. How did Christ love the church? Glad you ask. This is how he loved her. He loved her by, he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He washed her. That's how he loved his bride. Husbands, love your wife like that. But the most personal And the most intimate and the most powerful uses of that word are when we look at that person in the mirror. And we look at that face looking back at us and we read texts like Titus 3, for we ourselves, person in the mirror, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we used to be. But God saved us. But God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen? But it even gets more detailed, more provocative, more specific when you turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just pause and think that through. And do not be deceived. Don't let the world try to talk you out of it. Don't let your backslidden Christian friend, your carnal friend, try to talk you out of it. Do not be deceived by this, my friend. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then look what it says, and such were some Of you. Look at that person in the mirror. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed, right? Woo! That's what Mennonites say. Woo. (laughs) You were washed. You were such were some of you. Fill in the blank. Pick your word, whichever one it was. That was you, but you've been washed. You were sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, why take all that time chasing down all those references? Because of this truth. You come back to John 13, verse 7. Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash you, 
you have no part in me. But let me tell you, Peter, I have washed you. You're clean. You don't understand it right now, but in the days to come, there is a fountain of healing. Tomorrow night at Calvary, that fountain is going to be opened. They're going to look on the one they've pierced. And all nations and all people are going to become able to come to the foot of the cross and look at this fountain for cleansing. And here in this stark truth is this dividing line in our lives. Go back to chapter 1231, two weeks ago. Judgment has now come into the world, the dividing line in history, the dividing line in our lives, that this is not a both and, have it both way kind of conversation. This is an either or conversation. Either you have been washed or you have not been washed. There's no halfway in this conversation. Promise that when God calls you to himself, he will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will wash you. So 2 Corinthians 5 is true. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Thank you, God. In other words, in Christ Jesus, we are given a new identity. What I used to be, I am no longer. I am not a Christian thief. I am not a Christian liar. I am not a Christian who sins sexually. I no longer identify myself by my sin. I don't put any other title with my Christianity. I might have been all of those things in my past, but in Christ, I have been made new. I have been given a new identity by my Savior. And from this day forward, I am going to live out of my new identity. My old has passed away. I am new. My shame has been taken away. Woo! So back in Bible school, we sang a chorus, and I haven't heard it for years, but it still rolls around in my mind once in a while, these songs that we memorize, and it comes back, and it's a beautiful tune, and it says, I am covered over with a robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. I'm covered over with the precious blood of Jesus, and he lives in me. What a joy it is to know my heavenly Father loves me so and gives to me my Jesus. And when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. So Jesus washed their feet. He said, I've done this to give you a lesson in servant leadership. What you have seen me do, you should be doing for one another. And so it would be wrong to close this message without asking you the very same challenge that Jesus gives. How's your serving these days? But deeper and richer still is the spiritual call to life that Jesus washes souls. And it would be wrong to close this message without asking you the most important question of all. Have you come to Jesus to be washed clean? Do you have a clear conscience as you stand before a holy God? Do you know the joy of forgiveness of sin? Not because you are righteous, because none of us are righteous, but because Jesus was righteous. As Acts 22, 16 says, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What stops you from calling on his name and being washed clean from your sin? And I have asked this question so many times in previous sermons, and we will keep asking this question until Jesus returns. And it is this question, have you said yes to Jesus? 
That is the only question that is going to matter come judgment day. What have you done with Jesus? Have you answered his call on your life? Because Jesus washes feet and Jesus washes souls. And the only question is, has he washed you? And are you walking in the newness, the cleanness of forgiveness, the joy of knowing that the old me is dead and buried and gone? And then no matter what identity I might have chosen for myself before, I've been given a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old one is gone and the new one has come. And maybe this weekend, for somebody hearing this message, it is the time for you to cross the line of faith. Every time we gather, there's a prayer team that gathers at the front of the church to meet with people. And this might be a weekend where you say, I need to pray with somebody and I need to say yes to Jesus for the very first time. And for those of you who'd say, I did that years ago, my question to you is, are you living out the joy of your salvation, knowing that you are clean, you are pure, you've been given a new identity, and are you living out of that new identity? So let me pray with you. Why don't we stand together at all of our sites, Mission and East, stand with us. We'll pray, we'll sing, be on our way. Lord Jesus, how we need this message without embarrassing anybody or putting anybody on the spot. We simply know it to be true that every single one of us, as we look back over the course of our life, have things in our life that cause us to be ashamed. Things that we would not want to tell anybody. Things that we want to keep hidden. Things that we wonder, can they ever be forgiven? And oh, the grace of Jesus that says you can be washed, you can be clean, you can be new. That old you can be dead and buried and gone by the Spirit plunging you into salvation. As you cry out, you will be washed and you will be clean. And so, Father, we celebrate in the forgiveness. We celebrate in the cleansing. We celebrate in the forgiveness. We celebrate that we can walk as new creation. And Holy Spirit, would you do your work? I pray for the men and women, even right now, the voice of condemnation, the voice of the enemy that is chirping in their ears saying, you've gone too far. What you've done could never be forgiven. Lord, would you banish that thought? Would you let them hear the gentle words of Jesus that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that they can be clean, that they can be pure, and that we can walk in this new identity unto your great glory and our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.